Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Today we're starting a new series in the book of Titus. So if you have a Bible, you got your phone, whatever you got, uh, you can open it up to the book of Titus. Titus is in the New Testament uh, near the back uh, of the Bible. And around here, we just want you to know if you need to use a table of contents to find it, no shame in that. Uh, Most people who've been around church for a while need the table of contents to find the book of Titus as well. So we're starting a series through the book of Titus, and the name of the series is Every Good Work. You're going to see all the way through the book, there's this theme of good work or why the church engages in what the church engages in and what it looks like to be a church among people and in a culture that looks different and is possibly heading in some different directions. Now, one major theme we're going to see through the book of Titus is trouble. You ever been in trouble? When's the last time you can remember being in some serious trouble? If you're joining us online, maybe you want to throw that in the Facebook comments. When's the last time you remember being in trouble? Maybe it's when you were a kid. Maybe kids. Maybe this was like this morning, right? On the way to church, somebody here had to look into the back seat and say, if you continue to touch your sister, there's going to be trouble, right? Sometimes, uh, though, trouble comes in different ways. Have you ever been in one of those situations where trouble just compounds upon itself? I don't know. Like being in the middle of a global pandemic, stressed at work, kids staying home from school for months and months and months, everyone sharing the same Wi-Fi at the same time. It just starts to compound. Then in our country, there's a tense political climate. And you're like, what is going on here? A compounding trouble. Uh, back in the fall, many of you have heard this story, but my family and I went uh, on a camping trip to Providence Canyon down in uh, South Georgia. And um, on the way down there, we're pulling a borrowed camper and uh, a tire blew out. And then that tire, as it disintegrated uh, through a metal uh, from the lining of the tire into the next tire to puncture the tire that's right next to it. Uh, and so by the time I get the first tire changed, now the second tire is flat. And so we just limp into uh, the campground. Have you ever, you've had a vacation like this before. So I go to the next town over about 45 minutes away to buy a tire. They don't have it. They send me to another place. They're going to order after about five trips back and forth. Finally, we have two working tires, just compounding trouble. Well, that's what's going on in the background of the book of Titus. Now, Titus is a person, this is a protege of the Apostle Paul, a co-worker. And Titus seems to be in the New Testament, the guy that Paul sends in when things are not going right, when there is trouble, and specifically a lot of trouble. So Titus has been sent to this church, which is on the island of Crete. Now, Crete is a little island, but it's important in the Roman Empire. It's a major ports are there, so there's a lot of uh, commercial traffic in and out. It's also the center island of the worship of the god Zeus. And so they love Zeus on the island of Crete, which has led to a lot of confusion and trouble inside the church because they're bringing forms and practices of the worship of the god Zeus inside the church. 
On top of that, some guys have shown up in Crete teaching the church this variant form of uh, the Jewish faith combined in Christianity that leads to some really strange places. And so there's a measure of religiosity going on in Crete. And not to mention the fact that the culture around the church is wild. And so the church is trying to fit in into the culture as well. So it is trouble upon trouble. A lot is going on. The reason this book is important for us is because it provides a manual for the New Testament church to navigate both what it teaches internally, what it practices together as a church, and then its environment how it navigates living in a culture that might look very different from the people of God. And so we want to come to this book looking how we don't, to not get caught up in religiosity, but actually experience changed lives because of the gospel. Looking not for just the form of religion, but also its function. Looking to how to navigate our current cultural climate and how to be a witness or the church of Jesus even when things aren't going right around us. This is also important for us as a church because a year ago, Mercy Hill Church looked very, very different. We're meeting in a different location, as a different demographic of people. We've transitioned in the life of our church, which is a good thing, but if we're not careful, with new people coming in, new dynamics in our congregation, in a new location, a new area town, new community partnerships, the danger would be we all just start heading in our different directions. And in the middle of that sort of confusion, the, confusion, the book of Titus is a roadmap for us. Here's what's important. Here's what it looks like to be a church. Here's what we're after. Here's what we share. Here's who we are going to be. So with that in mind, this question, who are we? What's the starting point of the church? Let's jump into Paul's introduction, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. He writes this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, this is very typical of Paul's writings, one massive, long, run-on sentence. And it's going to be hard for us to pull this apart together this morning. So would you pray with me? And let's just pray that God would help us to see what's going on in the text. Can we do that together? Let's pray. Father, this is confusing. There are a lot of phrases that seem to not be related. And so, Father, could you help us, by your Spirit, understand the Scripture? Could you help us understand it in a way that changes our lives? Amen. Here's how Paul starts. 
First, he identifies himself. In verse one, he says, I am a servant of God. Now, the most common form of servitude in this day and time, especially for Jewish people, is not what we typically think of. It was arranged around debt. And so if someone owed a debt that they could not repay, what they would do in place of that debt was become a servant of the person they owed the debt to. In fact, in Jewish life, the system is designed so people don't get stuck there. Every seven years, those servants are supposed to be released in what the Old Testament calls the year of Jubilee. Now, but here's what would happen often is these servants would decide they preferred life as it was. They might say, I have a good relationship with my master. I've got some other needs going on in my life that I can't meet. And so I want to willingly continue to be a servant in this household. Now, the reason the system is set up this way is so that, that uh, masters could not take advantage of people. Does that make sense? And so at the end of seven years, you had to be released of, from your debt. Also, the reason the system is set up this way is so that they would not experience what we experienced in the United States during the time of slavery, where generational slavery occurred. And so the idea here is the person is a servant, not their sons or daughters. It doesn't perpetuate. They're going to be released. But if a servant decided this was the best situation for them, then they would stay. And there's another term in the New Testament they call these bond servants, or servants who've agreed to stay in service to their master. Here's what Paul is saying. This is, he's saying, this is me. This is who I am. I came to know Jesus. I was called to faith in Christ. God rearranged my life. And now of my own volition, I have placed myself as a servant of God. I am embracing that identity for myself. This is who I want to be. I am here choosing to put myself under God's leadership. Now, the reason this is important for us is because often we see service as an activity, not an identity. What we see is I can serve someone based around when I choose to serve them, based around if I am compelled by the act of service, I get to choose for myself when I engage in serving and when I don't. But that's not what Paul says about himself. He doesn't say he is serving God currently and he might decide to do something else later. He says, it's already settled. I'm a servant of God. That's my identity. And so from here, here moving forward in Paul's life, when God calls him to obedience, he wants to obey. When God calls him to a new mission, he wants to follow. When God is leading him in his life, Paul is saying, I'm a servant of God. That's who I am. And we likewise in the scripture as servants or disciples of Jesus are called into that same relationship to embrace not just the act of serving, but the identity of a servant, that we are followers of Jesus. He is Lord. That's why the Old Testament or the New Testament starts this little mantra that's repeated all the way throughout history for the Christian church. Jesus is Lord. What's the implication? I'm not. He tells me what to do. I follow. 
So that's Paul's first identity and one for us to embrace. The second one is he calls himself an apostle. Now, the word apostle is a little tricky in the New Testament. Here's why. Because at times in the New Testament, the word apostle refers to a particular office or particular people. People who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and were commissioned particularly by God to write down Jesus' teaching, write down accounts of Jesus' life, and to stand as eyewitnesses to the church of what happened. So that would include the disciples. That includes Paul. But the word apostle also just means sent once. And so there is a way that this word is used just to describe anyone who has been sent by God on a mission. Let me, let me give you an example. So I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church, which means by me holding that role and position, there are certain things that I do. Some of those things include caring for people in our church, teaching people the Bible in our church, gently leading and guiding our church, hopefully towards conforming to the character of Jesus. Does that make sense? But some of you do that too, right? There is an aspect of pastoring that all of us engage in. We all are called to care for each other. We all are called to gently guide each other towards godliness to conform to the character of Christ. All of us are called in some ways to teach the scripture to each other. So there is a sense in which you also pastor. Same thing here. There are specific apostles, and then there is a sense in which we all are sent. Which is why in John chapter 20, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, As my Father has sent me, so now I send you. And the pattern we see in the New Testament is those disciples sending other disciples, who send other disciples, who send other disciples, which is why we exist as a church. Thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from where this whole thing started. So here's what our starting point should be. Following the example of Paul, it's a real simple statement. We are servants sent by God. That's who we are. Our church, we are servants sent by God. That we are called, like Paul, to embrace the identity of a servant and to embrace the mission of God that we are sent for a reason on purpose by God. Now, what's that purpose? Here's what he says in the next verse. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul says, I'm a servant and I'm sent in order to work for the sake of the elect so that they come to faith in Jesus and so they grow in a knowledge that changes their lives. Now, we got to take a Zach Morris saved by the bell timeout right here, okay? Because there is a word in this text that is a hot button issue for some of us, and that's the word elect. So you guys ready for this timeout? All right, everybody take a deep breath. You're joining online. Everybody take a deep breath, okay? Let's walk through this real quickly together. John Stott says the word elect just simply means the New Testament people of God. It is a way that Paul and other biblical writers refer to God's people who are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. 
This is a way that Paul refers to God's people in numerous texts. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 2, 9, when he says that we are God's chosen people. Now, this causes for some of us controversy. And so today I want to be very clear about what I think the Bible teaches and where we stand as a church. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. There's two choices. Some people, and choice number one, believe this, that God chooses people to be saved and he made that choice before the foundation of the earth. And that the Holy Spirit does a work in those people's hearts to open them up to the gospel, to redeem them, that those people then hear the word preached, the gospel proclaimed, and those people respond in faith. That's what some people hold to. Now, that view has some mystery. That view raises some questions because for some of us experientially, we're like, no, no, God didn't choose me. I chose him. I was there, right? Vacation Bible school. I walked down front. That's not what it felt like. For some of us that might raise questions about God's character, there is some mystery and some difficulty involved in that view. So how do people arrive at that view? They arrive at that view honestly from the scripture. They look at passages like Ephesians chapter one and Romans chapter nine and conclude that's what the Bible teaches. And you can hold that view wholeheartedly because you arrived at it from the scripture. Now, the second view is this, that God knows who will be saved before the foundations of the earth. Those people hear the gospel preached. The Holy Spirit convicts them of sin and does a work in their hearts and they believe on Jesus. Now, in that second view, there's also some mystery. There are some questions how does God know but not choose? How is God sovereign and where does my responsibility start? And how do we overcome the sinfulness of our own hearts to make a decision like that? Guess how those people get to that conclusion? Honestly, from the Bible, they read passages like Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 10. And they conclude from those passages that this must be the correct view to take. Here's the key. Now listen, this is important. Both views require a work of God's spirit and both views require the, the preaching or the announcement of the good news that Jesus rescues sinners. Both require that. And these two ways, one way might articulate it like this. God elects people to be saved before the foundation of the earth, but there's only one way to find out who the elect are, Pray the Holy Spirit will work and preach the gospel. The other view might say the elect describes people who've already trusted Jesus. Those are who God chose, the people who already chose them. And guess what that view requires? People come to faith in Jesus when the Holy Spirit works and the gospel's preached. That's what we all have in common. So at our church, no matter what camp you fall in, there is space for you here. This is not an issue that divides us. This is not a flag that we are waving at Mercy Hill. This is just simply two different groups of people looking at the scripture in the most honest way they can and coming to different conclusions. And it's okay because it's hard. So some of us will lean more towards one side than the other. That's okay. 
Some of us will read Romans chapter 10 in light of Romans chapter 9. Some of us are going to read Romans chapter 9 in light of Romans chapter 10. And we are going to move forward hand in hand with the mission of God that he's called us to. Everybody okay with that? We all on the same page? Good. All right. So here's where we agree wholeheartedly and what we will stand on. God knows the beginning from the end, and that is a mysterious but true teaching in the scripture. We will hold clearly that salvation requires a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We will hold to clearly the means by which God calls his people to faith is by people telling other people about Jesus. And we're going to hold those close-handed And on some of these other mysteries, we're going to be open-handed and charitable and loving and kind. Now, let's get back to the important part. Because what Paul says is he's a servant sent by God, you remember that, to God's people. That's what he's trying to get across in this text. To the people of faith in Jesus. And what he hopes is that those people are going to trust Jesus and those people are going to learn about Jesus in a way that he says promotes godliness. Now, godliness, that's a churchy word, right? That's a pretty churchy word. What does it mean? I think a better way maybe to describe it or understand it is this phrase, God-centered lives. Now, you remember back in the day, Uh, When people, uh, some of you might have been alive in this time, I'm not sure. When people believed that the sun rotated around the earth. You remember that? Anybody have first knowledge? You you don't have firsthand knowledge of that belief, right? But why did people believe that? People believe that because when you're standing on earth, that's what it looks like, right? When you're standing in front of your house, what does it look like? The sun came up over there and it traveled over here. They believed it because based on the information that they had, the knowledge they had, that seemed like the most likely scenario. Then we got telescopes. Then we got Elon Musk sending dudes into space on rovers on Mars and all kinds of crazy stuff. We saw more of what happened. And when our knowledge grew, we changed our minds. And now we know that's not the way it works, that the sun is massive. And its gravitational pull is so big that what's actually happening is the earth is rotating around the sun. Here's what Paul is saying. That the goal of the church is for people to grow in the knowledge of Jesus in such a way that their orient, the orientation of their lives changes. So that they're no longer people where God is a sun rotating around them just like a bunch of other stuff. There's God and there's work and there's family and I'm juggling it all and I'm trying to figure out, but who's in the middle? Me. And I get to decide what I think about any of those times at any given moment. He's saying, no, no, godliness or God-centeredness is when you realize I'm just one planet revolving around God. And everything in my life goes through that filter. I understand everything. Not that I'm in charge, not that life is about me, not that I'm the main decision maker, not that I get to do whatever I want, but I am conforming to God. I'm in orbit around him. And so Paul says that's why he came. 
This is the starting point for the church. You understand this, right? That we are God's servants sent by God in order to accomplish something. Faith in Jesus and growth in godliness. So he gives us this idea about what this mission is. Verse 2. Promise before the ages began and was at the proper time manifested in his word through preaching. Here's what he just said. God had a plan from the beginning of time to redeem these people, the elect, to himself. God had a plan to save them through faith in Jesus. God had a plan for them to grow in godliness. And that plan was his son, Jesus. That from the very beginning, all the way to the end, the plan is Jesus. God was not caught off guard in Genesis chapter 3. God was not caught off guard when Abraham didn't do what he was supposed to do. God was not caught off guard when the people of uh, Israel rebelled, fleeing from Egypt. He's not caught off guard by any of that. He had a promise from the beginning that he was going to redeem his people through his son. And every step of the way, the whole story that we have, everybody's going, all right, man, this Ten Commandment thing didn't work out. What's next? What is it? This idea of the chosen people, the nation didn't hold. So what's God really up to? And Paul's saying what God has been up to all the way is Jesus. And the way or the mission of the church is to proclaim or preach that message. That God has provided a way to know him the way that you were intended to know him through Jesus. That's the plan. And that is Paul's mission. And guess what, guys? That's our mission too. Our starting point is that we are servants sent by God on God's mission. Now, this is important. It's not our mission. Does that make sense? We don't get to decide what happens. We're on God's mission. God has a plan. He's making it known through Jesus. We get to join him but we don't get to make it up. Does that make sense? So as we're at this starting point of Titus, let me stress to you, we exist as a church to serve God on his mission. Well, how? How do we do that? Two ways. The first way is this, we live it out. We live it out, right? That we would have lives which accord to godliness. Verse one, verse two, he says, this all conforms to the character of God who never lies. Now, What's going on at Crete is other cultural influence. Remember, they love Zeus. Now, you remember some stories about Zeus. He's got the lightning bolt, and he's like the king of all the other gods. He's incredibly powerful, but also what else does he like to do? He likes to sneak down to earth in disguise, deceive people, trick people, find out what's really going on. Now, when that's your God that you worship, guess what happens in the character of your life? You celebrate deception. You celebrate lying. That's what's happening in Crete. And so Paul is correcting them by saying, no, 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 we serve a God who never lies. And as we increase in our knowledge of him, we should be more and more like him in our character. So some people in our day and time have misconceptions about the character of God. So we as a church are called to show them in our lives that those things are not true. 
not just to grow in knowledge. This isn't just theological debates, but to grow in knowledge in a way that our lives look increasingly more like Jesus, that we would conform to God's character. So the first way that we engage as servants sent on God's mission is we live lives that look like the character of God, not perfect, right? We're not perfect people, but we're increasingly looking more and more like Jesus. The second way is we tell other people the story of Jesus. What he says, verse three, through the preaching of the word. Now, I know some of you are freaking out at this point, like, whoa, 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 Brandon. If you think I'm going to Kennesaw State for class this week and it stingers or at the commons, I'm going to stand up like on the tables in the middle of the cafeteria and just start preaching like what you do, uh, we got to talk. I'm uncomfortable with that. Brenda, are you saying my mission in life is to go to work tomorrow and in the break room stand up on a chair and be like, thus saith the Lord, like let's get this thing rolling. Are you expecting me, Barrett Parkway, right, to park at the Publix or the, the Target and Bullhorn and start preaching? No, no, no. There is a form of preaching that is what I do. It's important to the life of our church, but the Greek word for preaching just means proclamation. So yes, there are times at Mercy Hill Church every Sunday where what I do in preaching is important where we gather together and one of our leaders teaches from the Bible, attempting to make the, main, the meaning plain to show you how it fits in the big story of Jesus and to help you understand how to live by it. Yes, but that's not all. Just means anytime we proclaim as witnesses the goodness of God. So preaching can happen anytime anyone tells the truth about Jesus to someone else which means preaching can be done at a coffee shop. It can be done at a family reunion, on the sidelines of a soccer game, in a dorm room, around the dinner table at your house, after class on the campus green. It can be done in stingers or in the commons, at Arby's, splitting the five for 10, while you're tucking your kids into bed, while you're watching your grandkids for the weekend. Any time we tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done, we are proclaiming the gospel. And so then you and I are partners together, proclaiming the truth that Jesus saves lives, that there is forgiveness for us. There is adoption into God's family. We do belong. So let's put all this together. Big, simple statement. The book of Titus, this is our starting point. We are servants sent by God on God's mission to proclaim Jesus in our words and in our actions. And listen to me, this is important. We need both. Because if we just proclaim Jesus with our words and not with our actions, no one is going to take us seriously. They're gonna say, you talk a lot about Jesus, but you don't look a lot different from me. You talk a lot about Jesus, it doesn't seem to have any effect in your life whatsoever. If we do the opposite, I think it's even worse. We live lives that look like God, but don't say the reason we're in a relationship with God is because of Jesus. So then our friends and neighbors think that you can live godly lives without the gospel, without coming to repentance and faith, without the humility, without receiving grace, without being adopted into God's family. We can't do either one of those. We have to do both. We are sent servants, 
sent by God on God's mission to proclaim God's son Jesus in our words and in our actions. So what are some implications for us today? A couple. Number one, this is our starting point, which means this is the way we evaluate everything else. So if in our church conflict arises, we have to ask this question. Am I embracing my identity of a servant or am I just simply demanding my own life? We have to ask of ourselves, am I seeing this as someone on God's mission or am I seeing this as someone who has my own mission or agenda? We have to when it comes to the direction, the, where we are going together as a church. We have to ask this question, are we engaged in God's mission or is this just my mission? Are we clearly proclaiming the gospel or are we proclaiming something else? We have to evaluate our own hearts at this starting point. Am I a consumer or am I a servant? Am I a missionary or am I a country club member? Maybe this one is the one that has a little bit of sting for us right now. Do my friends know more about my political beliefs and leanings than they do what I believe about Jesus? If we are sent servants on God's mission to proclaim Jesus in our words and deeds, the answer to that question is immensely important. When it comes to navigating our culture, we're going to walk through this all the way through Titus. Am I fighting to preserve my own culture that I'm comfortable with, or am I striving to push forward the mission of Christ? Is this conflict with people around me simply a cultural preference, or is this scripture? Is this the way of Jesus? That must be for us our starting point. Second thing, implication for us, we must have both the message right and our lives right. We must, as Paul writes to Timothy, be careful of our life and our doctrine. We must be a church that teaches the scripture well, shows who Jesus is well, and one who lives radically as servants for our friends and neighbors. We want to be both. There is no reason for us to have to choose are we going to be a theological church or are we going to be a community church? Yes. Are we going to be people who love our neighbors and love the scripture? Yes, those are not opposed to each other. And so we want to hold on to both of those things. And we want to be careful that it is the scripture and following Jesus that's informing the way that we do that. We don't want to rush into, as we've seen the strange form of Christian nationalism where God and country are mixed together in a very strange way. We also don't want to rush into social action without thinking about it biblically. We want to hold on to both of those things carefully. Does that make sense? Fine. Some of you are really overwhelmed right now because you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's back up to this thing where you told me that you can share Jesus in a coffee shop I'm not super comfortable doing that. You know what I mean? And it's probably not because you don't like coffee. It might be because you're just un uncomfortable having a conversation about Jesus with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. And so we want to help. We got a simple tool. It's all online. It's called Three Circles. It's about having gospel conversations. And so today we want to open this up to you. We'll talk about it a little bit more. You can sign up online or you can sign up on person. Here's what, in person. Here's what will happen. 
you will get an email if you sign up with a link to six videos that are four to five minutes that all just explain how to have a conversation about Jesus with a friend, coworker, or neighbor. This is not the only tool. It's just a tool, all right? Sometimes you need a wrench. Sometimes you need a hammer. Sometimes you need an impact drill. You know what I'm saying? Like this is one tool, just one way that you can grow in how to have gospel conversations. And so after this service, there'll be places for you to sign up. Lauren's gonna come and give you all those details in just a few moments where you can just real simply at your own pace, go through some videos to think through how you can share the gospel in a conversational, very easy way. Does that make sense? That's not inauthentic, right? The charge is some of the training is inauthentic because it's like a memorized thing. That's not the point, all right? We want it to be authentic. We also want it to be intentional, all right? So get a little bit of training, watch some videos. It's gonna be great. Everybody good with that? Cool. If you're online, Man, you already are used to this whole thing, so you can sign up online too. Expect floods coming in from Facebook Live right now, people interested. All right, here's the big idea today. Remember, we are servants sent by God on God's mission, not ours, to proclaim Jesus in our words and in our actions. Everybody good? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you have chosen to rescue us through Jesus. May we wholeheartedly embrace our identity as servants. May we embrace your mission. May we live out that mission in both word and deed. Could we be that sort of people? Father, today, if there's somebody here, somebody watching online, God, who is far from you, who would say, man, I don't know Jesus. I'm not concerned with Jesus. Today, Father, could you by your spirit convict them of their sin and draw them to you? Could they see their need clearly for Jesus? And God, could they respond in faith by trusting on Jesus? Father, could you make us a church that our starting point is always, we're servants, we're sent, we're proclaimers of the good news and word and deed. We pray that in the name of Jesus, amen.